Welcome to the Biscos Pediatric Orthopaedic Digest or podcast. It's a panel discussion of what we regard as the most interesting published papers of relevance to paediatric orthopaedic surgeons. Please do remember the views are our own and not those of the Biscos board, committees or membership. Right. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's 2023, and this is our first BizCos Pediatric Orthopaedic Digest cast of the year. Uh, thank you for tuning in, uh, all five of you, uh, and that includes my mum, I think. But uh, you're in for a treat today. We've got our special guest, Emily Baird from Edinburgh. We've got Alpesh Katari, as usual. We've got producer Pranay Budev and me, Anish Singrajka. Uh, so, Alpesh, do you want to kick off with Emily? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Emily. Thanks for joining us uh, for this winter edition of our podcast. Um, Yeah, especially at such short notice. So uh, sorry about that. Um, So as you know, the first section of the podcast is for the listeners to get to know our guest and showcase the great work that has been done done across the UK. So Emily, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your unit, your practice, and what aspects of your job you're particularly into at the moment. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for for having me on and Happy New Year to everybody. So I work up in Edinburgh at the Sick Kids or the Royal Hospital for Children and Young People, as it's it's now known. We we moved about a year or so ago to a brand new hospital, expanded our our age limit up to 16. So, yeah, lots of exciting stuff has been been happening in Edinburgh on the back of that and being a a major trauma centre and kind of getting services rolled up and enhanced for that older population so that's that's been exciting so my practice is uh, trauma obviously um, and then from elective perspective fairly general and that I do DDH and club foot as my sort of two main strands um, and my other colleagues kind of cover cover all the other bases so we pretty much offer everything in Edinburgh which is great um, to fairly recent appointments of Jürgen Mesner and Kate Bigler to our team so yeah, we're we're in a good footing at the moment. It's uh, it's exciting times with the new hospital and and um, with the new age bracket and expanding our um, AHP service as well. So yeah, what's what's kind of turning me on at the moment? Um, yeah, club foot. We're doing all our tenotomies in clinic, and it's the physio practitioners doing that. So we can maybe chat about that later with some of the papers. Um, and then from a training perspective. I'm, quite involved in the local training program and uh, we have run through training in Scotland so we have ST1s and ST2s so I've kind of made a personal thing of um, looking after those guys and really doing sort of an enhanced induction and boot camp with them so that's that's been kicking off the last year or so and then yeah work with kind of equality and diversity mentorship coaching lots of different training things going on so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm busy but all going fairly well. Uh, no, that's great. I mean, I was really impressed when I read your bio. Um, and and you actually, yeah, to reiterate what you just said, you mentioned broadening access to orthopedics uh, through mentorship. And I was sort of really wondering what, what shape this mentorship takes and what we could do to be better mentors. Uh, yeah, good question. Um, I think my kind of mentorship journey has evolved over my career. Um, I was very impressed with some of my trainers. I trained in the west of Scotland 
and your previous uh, guest, Claire Murnahan, definitely one of my mentors. And that was all about sort of role modeling and informal mentorship. And I've kind of explored informal versus formal and set some mentorship schemes up. Um, then through my work with Bota, um, looked into you know what made a good trainer, you know, was involved in the trainer of the year, not winning it, I mean, <laughs> organizing it. Um, and through that mentorship kept coming through really, really strongly. So I think it's it's really important and it's different from different people. As I said, it can be formal, informal. Um, I think initially I thought you had to be matched with people like you. And I think traditionally that has been the case and that often females been, you know, matched with other females and all sorts of other protected characteristics brought together. But my horizons have really been broadened by people like Lisa Hadfield-Law, the BOE, actually saying that we don't need to be matched. And I've gone through a process of reverse mentoring where I've been matched with someone completely unlike me, you know, quite a junior trainee, and really, he's been mentoring me. So that's been an interesting process, um, for sure. And then within BISCLOS, um, we're looking at set, setting up men, men, mentoring. So the early years rep, uh, Adele Fishlock and Helen Bryant, who's the EDI rep, is, is they're looking at setting that up. And we're in the EDCOM looking at what the trainee journey is like and how important mentorship is and where that comes into your career and your decisions to go ahead with orthopedics. So, yeah, so you're really saying something you're really passionate about clearly um you know you're also really into medical education i'm just gonna um thank you again for the 2019 ccc that was an awesome course really incredible uh educationally and um and it was just fun wasn't it um so finally as you know the, the theme for this year's podcast is resolution so I, i'm thinking of this from a professional perspective uh with all the feathers in the cap in your cap that you have have you got a specific you know, goal for 2023 in your PDP, something you really want to achieve? That's a challenge because I am pretty pessimistic about New Year's resolutions. So maybe not your ideal uh, guest for this particular podcast. Um, you it's know, this too late absolute... here. We, 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 have, we have you, we can't get another one. We've got to get this out. So just <laughs> roll with it. Okay. Sorry. But the stats are terrible for New Year's resolutions. You know, 91% are unsuccessful so I think it's really <laughs> it's really challenging to set a resolution this aspiration this really high goal that most people don't don't attain until you understand why you don't attain that goal so I would really like to explore coaching more so I have had coaching personally I've recommended coaching for trainees and other colleagues of mine um, and looking into the research and working with them um, people at like Steve Yule, who's a professor of psychology, who works with the, uh, the surgical team here in Edinburgh, and they've set up uh, surgical coaching. So actually, I'm not going to set a personal development plan resolution other than to further explore coaching so I know why I might be unlikely to keep any uh, resolutions that I might set. Okay. Well, that sounds like a smart objective. It's, you, you, that's achievable. <laughs> um, so, okay, we're good. Thanks for that. It's really interesting. Um, we're going to move on to your paper. And I, I really liked your choice of paper, actually. I think there's, especially after last week, when I had a bit of a shocker in theatre with the radiographer. And, um, you know, so I think your paper is particularly poignant. Um, so, yeah, go, go for it. Tell us about your paper, please, Emily. Oh, thank you. Um, so I've chosen a paper called A Universal CR Language uh, to Improve ORs, so Operating Room Morale. 
So this was published in November of last year in J. Posner. And I think we've all had the experience where we have been, you know, taking far too many x-rays, taking x-rays of our hands, taking x-rays completely of the wrong body parts, got really frustrated with ourselves, with trainees, with uh, radiographers, because we've, you know, we're basically not talking the same language and sharing that same mental model. So Jennifer Brower and Ina Nielsen at Seattle Children's um, wrote this paper, which was published at the end of last year. So basically, they wanted to have this universal language for directing the radiographer. So the C-arm can move in 12 different directions. I'm not even sure I knew before, um, you know, sitting down to read this, that that was possible, but there are 12 different directions. Um, and that hadn't actually been looked at before in a sort of real time to see how durable it was to have that language uh, to communicate. So their hypothesis was that it would improve efficiency, um, decrease the fluoro time, and obviously the radiation exposure, and improve uh, frustration. So they developed these uh, 12 instructions and had a little poster. So it doesn't work fantastically well for a podcast, I'm afraid. Uh, not, not the best um, for, for audio, but hopefully in the show notes we can have an example. So basically telling the radiographer, raise up, lower down, pull out, push in, roll back, roll over the top, tilt to the head, tilt to the foot, move to the head, move to the foot, and then wag to the head, wag to the foot. So it's certainly that latter wag, I wasn't that familiar with, with that, definitely didn't use that language. Um, so they basically put posters on the C-arm itself in the OR, sent emails and got everyone to try and use this language. And then at one month and three months, they evaluated whether it was being used and what the sort of retention was of the, the information and did a satisfaction survey. So there was quite a low response rate at the first month. And I think we can all appreciate survey fatigue is, is real. Um, but they got... 57 people responding, so about 69% response rate. And it was a mixture of attendings of different uh, surgical specialties. So not just orthopedics, general surgeons, urologists, plastics, neuro as well. Um, and then also the radiology technicians or the radiographers. So mostly they were white and native English speakers. Um, and they all recalled the, the 12 instructions pretty well. So, so around about 77%. They didn't look any later than the three months. So it would be interesting to know, you know later on whether it had been retained. But um, at those time points, only about 50% of people actually adopted the language. And around about 40% said that they improved the CRM use. So maybe not as positive as you might expect. Um, the surgeons, rather than the radiographers, are much more likely to use it to correct the movement, to give instructions, and they perceived that there was less fluoro and there was less delays. They also thought there was less frustration uh, secondary to the miscommunication. So the surgeons seem to like it more than the radiographers, which is interesting. Um, and that does fit with previous uh, previous work done by Williams and Yeo, which they quoted. So actually training people in pairs, um, there is less fluoro time, less fluoro shots. But that's not what this group looked at. They didn't actually use any quantifiable outcome measures. They just looked at kind of surveys and how satisfied people were and their perceived um, benefits of it. So will it change my practice? I think. 
I'm going to have a good chat with our, our radiology colleagues and radiographers about whether they think it's useful or not. Um, I think I am already quite careful in my language, quite um, aware that too many fluoro shots are taken and I take time with the trainees in particular to be judicious about it, sort of set up fully before you take the first shot, all those sorts of things, use your lasers. And actually having language around when the x-rays to be taken is maybe just as important because I think saying shot x-ray now, yeah, you know, there's all sorts of different language and they didn't look at that in this paper at all. So I think there's something to be learned there. And I think the little uh, poster is is good and that'd be good to put in the show notes so other people could see that and see whether they think that would be, be useful. But keen to hear what, what, what you guys thought of that paper and whether that might change your practice. I mean, I think just leaving the posters up on the CR would be more useful than taking them down after a month, but I understand they had to do that for their, you know, for this study. So keen to, keen to hear what you think. Thanks, Emily. Um, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting paper because it made me reflect on my own practice in theatres. I'd like to think I uh, say the right things every time, but I suddenly realised, you know, it's quite good to have words like tilt uh, and differentiate from role. Uh, something I've seen recently, and some of our trainees are coming through and some of the uh, newer consultants talking about green and yellow. I don't know if you've ever noticed on the image intensifier, uh, it actually has those colours. So you can say, oh, can you spin on this and spin on that? But I don't actually understand the colours so well. So um, that's why actually this would be really useful. I thought what was interesting was the frustration seemed to just be the surgeons. Uh, do you think the radiology techs were just being polite, but they're frustration scores and their perception of miscommunication was much lower than the surgeons. Whereas, frankly, I just thought they'd be the guys getting really fed up with the surgeons going, do this, do that. Yeah, yeah I thought I they're so used interesting. To, um, you know, they're just so used to work, working with a variety of surgeons, each with their own language, that they're probably a bit desensitised to it, to be honest. I mean, I think that relationship is is interesting. I think a lot of surgeons don't even know the names of the radiographers that, that come in. So we're, you know, put their names on the board to communicate. And I think um, that is another technique to reduce frustration and improve communication as well. Yeah, I agree that I think there was this uh, paragraph, which was a bit of a sort of euphemistic. It is a due to the nature of the working relationship, the radiology technicians have less autonomy in which terms are used, which may have may also lead to frustration and decreased benefits from a universal language. Um, and yeah, similarly, so I think just getting their name, maybe having a little briefing beforehand about what the plan is, what you're going to do is is all helpful. But I quite like this. I think I might I might try it um, and, and see see what happens. You know, we need more laminated bits of stuff up around the place, don't we? That, that's, that's what the world needs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as, as long as they're wipeable, aren't they, in this era? I thought um, the other thing that was interesting was, as you said, they didn't actually use the language for very long, but the scores improved. And I think it's that whole thing, isn't it? Is that um, where you, if you're measuring something, you automatically see improvement. And so I think the fact that people thought, oh, we're being monitored here, uh, and they could see maybe that actions have been taken to try and improve circumstances, meant that everyone's just a little bit happier. Uh, and so just having that chit chat with your radiographer at the beginning of the list uh, and saying, right, these are the terms I might use, because um, it's it's always OK when you're just doing straight AP shots, isn't it? It's kind of move in, move out. But when you're starting to do something a bit more complex where you do need to get various uh, projections, that's when it all starts. And that's normally when the stress levels are going up. So I think having that chat 
having a laminated sheet somewhere. Uh, maybe in this day and age, you could even be on the computer. How about that? You know, you could actually just have the J Posner paper there. Um, but, but that might be a little bit too futuristic for us working in the NHS. So anything yeah, it's also when you're tired and you're stressed. It's all these, you know, yeah. non-technical um, elements come into it. You know, when you're doing the distal locking at the end of maybe a more complex nailing, that's when you need brilliant communication with your radiographer. And often they're the person that can get those perfect circles because you're just a bit frazzled by it. Actually, you know, sharing that experience with an experienced radiographer, that's, that's the time to do it. I have to say, I don't envy them. You know, you just think when you're thinking about how often they get it right when they're pushing that big machine in and out. And then this is just when we see them in theatres, when you think about what they're having to do downstairs with people with broken limbs and things uh, and uh, getting it right the way they do. Uh, they are. I, I am in awe of them. Every now and again, I pop down there to get things sorted uh, with various uh, patients, uh, usually frames and things, and they know much more than I do. And a great way to really annoy them is to start messing with their stuff, start touching their stuff. Yeah. So I think okay. we've all probably done that once and, and won't do it again. Uh, just for the listeners, I'd like to clarify that Alpesh meant their machine and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, either way, they dislike it. I mean, they really do. Um, so, um, OK, I, I think that's a great paper. And let's move on to uh, some bite-sized um, discussions of some papers. Um, so, so, team, presumably you generally double glove, wear eye protection, a lead gown of using eye. Yep, yeah? uh, we've got some nods there. So do you wear ear defenders? No. No. <laughs> well, according to Quanatal from the Rothman Institute um, out in Philadelphia, maybe we should. In this uh, study titled Risk of Noise-Induced Hearing Loss uh, for Orthopaedic Surgeons published in the JBGS in uh, December, 300 audio recordings in various orthopaedic subspecialty theatres were undertaken by the investigators. Now, the upshot of this study was that in orthopaedic theatres, dangerous levels of noise are often encountered. Now, prolonged exposure to above 85 decibels is bad, and 84% of cases had a maximum decibel level over this threshold and 35% over 100 decibels. Now, apparently, the, the worst case uh, cases for noise are microdiscectomies, laminectomies, um, and knee replacements. So I thought it was an interesting little study, but um, wearing ear defenders isn't really practical uh, when working in a team. But I would say, Anish, at the very least, you should turn down your gangster rap. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, there may be many people in my theatres who quite like the idea of the, the ear defenders. <laughs> I was reading that paper and I thought, OK, as paediatric orthopaedic surgeons, luckily we don't deal with power tools on the same frequency, do we? So uh, we should be all right. Yeah, I know. True, true. Um, so I've got a couple of Clubfoot papers as well. So, uh, Emily, you're mentioning your interest. So um, you probably came across these as well. Um, so the first is a prospective randomised Ponsetti treatment for Clubfoot orthopedic surgeons versus physical therapies, uh, therapists. So this was Chen et al, uh, JPO February um, this year, so just hot off the press. Uh, so I'm just gonna go through the PICO for this study. So the population was all newly diagnosed club feet between 2010 and 2014 from one institution. The intervention was club foot casting. The comparators were casting by surgeon or by a trained physical therapist. And the main outcome was the number of casts required to achieve correction or to reach the point of tenotomy other measures looked at brace wear, compliance, skin or cast complications, or clinical recurrence of the deformity. So they enrolled 
126 patients, 185 feet in the study, 61 patients in the doctor group, and 65 in the physio group. So to cut to the chase, Ponsetti casting for treatment of clubfoot performed by orthopedic surgeons and physios resulted in equivalent outcomes without any difference in complications, although the number of casts required trended to a lower number in the doctor's group. Now, I don't really think the results were surprising at all, um, but it's always good to have a level one study to confirm this. I've just got a couple of comments, however. I, I don't know if you guys read that the randomized method was they tossed a coin for the first patient and then alternated thereafter. So, I mean, I don't know how they got that past the ethics committee, but anyway. Um, and, um, you know, also I thought if they did this, why did the physio group have four more patients than the MD group? Mysterious. Um, we, we, we randomized to negate the effects of potentially confounding variables, but the physio group uh, was almost double the age of the doctor's group when they initiated treatment. So I found that a bit odd. But I'd say overall, a pretty good study. Some hints at some methodological statistical issues. I'm not sure I'd call it gold standard evidence, but maybe for this research question, we don't need any more level one evidence. I think anyone appropriately trained can do a good job when it comes to Ponsetti casting. And we rely on our physios to do an amazing job and they, they do that. How so, does it work in your unit, Emily? Is it, are you, do you do it with physios or is it, are you involved every time? So the physios run the service fairly autonomously. So that was set up um, by Alistair Murray and he and the physios, you know, really have developed an amazing service that runs without us as surgeons. And as I mentioned earlier, to the extent that, that the physios are doing tenotomies in clinics. So really we've kind of taken this idea and, and run with it and have, you know, really excellent results. So I think this paper just, you know, adds more more weight to that. I don't think anyone argue about Ponsetti, and now I don't think anyone should argue now about the, the physios leading that service. Um, and that's not universal. So I'm interested to hear what happens in, in, in your units or across the country, certainly across Scotland, that's that's not universal. And personally, I think it should be. I think it is common. It's more common in the UK, isn't it? I think that's why I was surprised to see this paper because it's almost proving uh, what we what we already do. And Alpesh, you know, as you said, it's it's good to have a study to confirm. But I just wonder whether that's because things are done very differently in North America and they're still very physician dependent. But yeah, so ours are provided primarily by our physios. The consultants in charge do work with them. But yeah, the physios don't really need them there, except for the tenotomy. So actually, Emily, I've not heard of physios doing tenotomy. So you've got yours doing that as well. We do. Yeah, we have an excellent a physio that's uh, kind of led the way and we've developed a training program um, logbook much like a surgical trainee would train um, yeah. you know for prescribing local anaesthetic working with our anaesthetic colleagues to develop that side of things um, so we're just about to um, present those results and you know they are equivocal um, in terms of uh, surgeon versus physio so um, just kind of a further development of this this idea really and it depends on the, the individual physio and not all physios want to do that and that's absolutely yeah. fine we just have been very lucky to have Sarah Patterson who leads our club fruit service who has you know been keen to do that and has now you know done done hundreds of them and, and is extremely good at them. Well that, that is interesting we have again a physio uh, led service but we we do the tenotomies ourselves i mean if you're having success with the physios doing it maybe um you know i'll speak to our guys and see if they want to do it as well it could be could be interesting to explore 
Um, so the next Clubfoot paper um, comes from A. Betal out of the um, Royal London Hospital and was published in JPOB January this year. Uh, tibialis anterior tendon transfer using bone anchor uh, for dynamic supination in congenital talipes equinovirus. Uh, so basically, the team here reported that in these 77 feet that they used an anchor for their tibant transverse, it kind of worked essentially nearly perfectly all the time with no failures, and the dynamic supination was always corrected aside from in one foot. Um, now, whilst they didn't have a particularly objective way to assess dynamic supination, um, apart from a retrospective review saying, yeah, it's it's all good, um, it's good to know that their method seems to work well, and they're, they're still using it, so that's, I guess, proof in the pudding. Um, I thought it was interesting, actually, that their, their post-op protocol was just a, a walking below knee cast for four weeks, um, which is not what I do. And I might I might review what I do. And uh, I'm interested to know what, what you guys do as well. I mean, we, we, we have a lot of debates in our unit about anchors, buttons, interference, screws. I mean, I guess this paper uh, backs up the pro-anchorists a bit more. Um, so I don't know what you guys use, what you do post-op. I, I went down to visit uh, Naomi Davis in Manchester, again, another another mentor, um, and basically I started doing what she did um, and drilled a tunnel, you know, suture buttons all over the foot. Um, I have moved away from above knee casting to below knee casting, but I do cast for six weeks. So yeah, I think four is punchy, but there seems to be working well, albeit, you know, a subjective um, assessment of dynamic supination and recurrence rather than you know maybe looking towards more of the core outcome set that Neil Gelfer and our team are developing. Yeah um, and it's it's how you're trained isn't it and I suppose everyone does it a certain way uh, so I'm used to the uh, bone tunnel it feels nice doesn't it when you pull the tibialis anterior tendon transfer through that hole and you can understand how it's going to heal. Uh, I have seen uh, suture anchors used uh, where I did see them used. We had a bit of a bad experience. And so that's all it takes, isn't it? One experience to put you off. So I was really interested in seeing this uh, paper and they, clearly it's working for them. Um, what you say about above knee casting is interesting, actually, because I'd always use below knee. But my understanding was that some of the Ponsetti users are now pushing for above knee when you're doing a tibialis anterior tendon transfer. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what, what Naomi Davis does currently. Right. Yeah. A bit of a challenge for bilateral and the older kids in particular, especially if you're pre-op casting out some equinus as well, you could be committing them to, you know, nine weeks, which, you know, significant impact on the child and the family. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, we've had quite a lot of discussions in the unit recently about how long we're keeping people in cast above knee, below knee. Um, yeah, no, I think... I'm not sure that anyone knows really the correct answer, but getting them going sooner, if it's safe, is sounds like a good thing to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, let's move on to a couple of papers about pain. Um, so this, again, was uh, from the JBJS in November. Pain catastrophizing influences preoperative and postoperative patient-reported outcome outcomes in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. So this is Ramo et al. out of TSRH. Uh, the title says it all, really. In this prospective study, they looked at patients undergoing posterior spinal fusion, compared patients' experience, pain catastrophizing against, uh, sorry, patients experiencing pain catastrophizing, catastrophizing, that's a difficult word, say that three times in a row, um, against those who did not. Um, so using the SRS uh, 30 questionnaires, uh, they found that patients with pain catastrophizing had worse pre-op scores than the other group, 
And whilst both group domain scores improved after surgery, at two years, the non-catastrophizing group remained better for pain and total domain scores. So I, I think we need to generally look more at this. I know we don't do spines, but this concept applies to our patients, the psychological modulation of physical symptoms. And you know, maybe much like we do physical prehabilitation before surgery, uh, maybe we also need to do some psychological prehab before surgery. And maybe if you did that, you won't need to operate because their symptoms potentially can get better uh, with this. So try and mitigate some unfavorable behaviors like pain catastrophizing to maximize outcomes for surgery. Um, something to think about. Yeah, so in the British Journal of Pain last year, they actually looked at orthopedic surgeons and how good we were collectively at assessing for catastrophizing. Mm. Um, and we were pretty bad, as you could probably um, imagine. So they suggested that we all use a screening tool um, pre-op and then that our patients would have better access to support services pre-op and have, have better outcomes. And as you say, some might be diverted from, from surgery altogether. And also that it, um, catastrophizing predicts opioid use as well. So another really important factor, particularly in the States, where you know, clearly have such a, a difficult time with, with opiate use, selecting out these patients, the adult patients, obviously really, really important. I think the problem is the access to psychology, isn't it? Um, I don't know what it's like for you guys where you work. Uh, some of my patients, because of their postcode, get a really good deal uh, and have a very nice psychologist that they get to see. Yeah. And others, we have to use voluntary counselling services because there really is a dearth of services. Do you guys have, just out of interest, uh, psychologists attached to your units that you can refer reliably to? Yeah, they're just in the offices next door to us. We've got they're really good service, actually, really accessible. And are they purely for kids' orthopedics or? Um, well, rheumatology and, and they work with the pain service as well. So, right. okay, that's brilliant. Yeah, we have quite a lot of input into our limb recon service. So, you know, joint clinics with um, with the psychologists as well. So really important group of patients to, to have their involvement. And yeah, we have a massive open plan office space. So we're literally in the mix with everybody, which is actually quite good. We all kind of moan about it to some extent, but actually for these kind of discussions between specialties and disciplines, um, it, it works well for that. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted on that paper, Alpesh, because when I was reading it, I thought what they were saying was actually, so for me, the catastrophizers would be the guys, did you see that I got that right? Uh, yes. The catastrophizers would be the guys who shouldn't get surgery. But what they said was they got surgery and actually they did get better. Yeah, um, which I thought was interesting. And sometimes it is like that, isn't it? It's the guys where you feel that you've tried everything else and actually surgery might be the one thing that kind of unlocks progress. Um, so it, it kind of, for me, it validated that little bit of practice. And I think a psychologist has got to be on board with that, where you're making those decisions to say, is this going to be the thing that helps? Because sometimes nothing else has. Um, and as we say, you know, nothing heals like surgical steel. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> Well, this actually sort of runs into the, my final paper, um, which is also about pain, and it's it's a heavy paper, and I'm not going to go into too much. Mate, I tried reading that one. I'm going to come clean. Just the abstract. I just I couldn't get my head around that. Yeah. Uh, I think well, is this guy having me on? Uh, but anyway, I'm interested to hear how you summarise this for me, Emily Pranay. Okay. And okay. So so I came across this paper via nature but actually it's in cell reports um, published in december 2022 i mean that's my standard reading usually mm -hmm. uh, so this is um a study titled a nociceptive neuronal ensemble in the, in the 
dorsomedial prefrontal cortex underlines underlies pain chronicity and this is by Chiatel from uh, Beijing now it's really quite complicated so to summarize these investigators did some pretty technically advanced investigation on transgenic mice and I identified a specific group of neurons in the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex that contribute to the development and perception of chronic pain they basically could turn it on and off which I thought was pretty amazing and we've got imaging studies in humans to show that this part of the brain is also really important in the modulation of symptoms. And, you know, this piqued my interest because recently, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I've seen a lot of pediatric chronic pain recently. And I, it's a really desperate situation. You feel so helpless. And um, I mean, it's amazing how, how, how many, you know, how effective these youngsters can be. So the research clearly at an early stage, um, but the better understanding we get of these mechanisms, um, the closer we are to curing it. So I thought it was really interesting. So the one methodological uh, question I had was, what? how did they assess pain in these mice? Was it a VAS or were they using some sort of faces? <laughs> a VAS. Uh, so this now feels like a viva. So do you, I, I, obviously, <laughs> I, I read the paper very well. At one point, I, I understood if, uh, f uh, but basically, um, I think they killed them and they had luminescence. They had the CFOS uh, marker. See, I can remember. I've got some recall. Um, <laughs> And, and and I think when it's turned on, it luminesces. I think that they picked that up in the slices of their brain uh, to show activity. Hopefully they'll change their uh, kind of research plan when they bring it forward to humans. Good plan. Good plan. So um, so that's all, all my papers. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting um, last few months. Um, yeah, let's move on. Right. So moving on, uh, every show so far, we've had a bit of a discussion. And those of you who follow Twitter will have seen uh, Pranay, based on Emily's uh, theory about 90% of New Year's resolutions are broken, asked people for their top 10 New Year's resolutions. So one of them's got to work, right? Uh, and we had quite a good response. So um, there was a lot of spend more time with my family. I think everyone said that, um, except for me. Um, genuinely, uh, I thought I spent a lot of time with them over Christmas, so I've ticked that box. Um, Roger Walton wanted to see Joel Linton score at Wembley. Anyone know who Joel Linton is? Yeah, he'll need to sober up a bit, won't he, if he's going to score? Um, <laughs> he was done for drink driving, wasn't he? So, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I suppose, yeah, that's probably not in Roger's hands then. Um, Laura Derryu, she's going to be running a 5k, she says, this year. Um, there was a lot of people trying to control work-life balance. So uh, she put no out-of-hours meetings. I think in our world, uh, a lot of things wouldn't happen if we had no out-of-hours meetings. So I think I'm going to have to carry those on. No work emails when you're off. How many? Of, uh, which of you guys do that? Does anyone able to do that? No, everyone's looking blank. Yeah, terrible doing that. Yeah. yeah, just feel them as they come. It's yeah. not great. I, I do deal with the important ones because otherwise you just have loads when you come back, right? Um, Mary Thayat from South Africa. Um, what I liked was actually um, she'd put here place boundaries for mental well-being. I thought that captured things quite nicely. Uh, and she's also planning on adulting as well. Um, Darius <laughs> Rad, I really liked this. Book a weekend every eight weeks and dedicate it to the family. Um, I was surprised he could do just one every eight weeks, but actually I think that's quite realistic. So that was very cool. Um, Helen Chase has said she's going to uh, travel more, to which Yale Gelfer said, how is that possible? Uh, and yeah, Pranay, I think you're the person who travels as much as Helen. So uh, yeah, I don't know how you guys would uh, do this even more. 
Uh, and there's also resolutions about becoming a superhero or villain, but I think that's all per uh, perception, isn't it? Uh, Abhi Singh, who is now the BOTA president, he's going to listen to one book chapter every day, so non-clinical. Uh, I'm going to try and read one book that's non-clinical in the next 12 months. And then Anna Peak, I love this. Uh, she wants to listen to more non-medical podcasts. Hopefully that doesn't mean she's not going to listen to ours. <laughs> Tell my children off less and give said children more jobs in the house instead. The problem I've got with that actually is I've tried number three and then actually that doesn't help number two. You give them more jobs doesn't mean you're going to tell them off less. Okay, just creates more cause for concern. Uh, and then we've got Dan Perry, who was very philosophical and said he's going to find the opportunities when things go bad. Uh, so all I can say is uh, I should have many, many opportunities ahead of me in the years to come. Uh, and uh, Doxy Fox, uh, who is actually Alwyn Abraham from Leicester, uh, he wins. OK, so his uh, New Year's resolution times 10 was listen to the BizCos podcast. So I think that's got to be the best New Year's resolution anyone's made and the easiest one to keep. Uh, so, yeah, hats off to him. Uh, Alpesh, you didn't put anything on Twitter and neither did you, Pranay. What are your resolutions? I'm not going I to did. Ask I, I, did. I said there, were, there was a long list, 10 to break. Um, oh, I saw that. I didn't actually see the list. Did you put a list? All oh, right. Well, no, no. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I guess after my recent surgery, um, this has got a double meaning to be a bit more flexible. Um, <laughs> get moving, but maybe mentally flexible as well. Uh, OK, that's very cool. Uh, and Pranay? Um, I want to do more thing, more of the things I enjoy and start dropping the things that I say yes to that I don't really enjoy. In which we're not including the podcast, right? No, we're still here. We're good. Yeah. Okay. Few, few. Uh, right. And then, uh, and so mine, mine were, uh, as you guys can see, I've, um, I've accepted that I have to wear glasses. Old age has caught up with me um, and I'm not going to try and fight that anymore. But this is a real bugbear of mine. And I don't know if you guys do this, but you're in clinic. You're aware that things are getting late. So then uh, you stop dictating because you think, I can do that at the end. Let me just call patient in, patient in, patient in. And actually what happens then is I spend longer dictating at the end because you're trying to look up various x-rays and things just to refresh your memory. I say you might know a bit of the story, but you need the details. Are you guys very good at dictating as you go along? Any tips or tricks for me? I dictate in front of the patient uh, before Ooh. they leave the room. So we have um, we have voice recognition software. It takes a little while. So our letters go straight onto the system. That takes a little while. So um, I don't think the patients would be particularly impressed if they saw me using this software. Um, <laughs> I try and, and do it as I go. And Emily? Oh, definitely do as you go. It's an absolute nightmare to have a stack at the end. It just is misery. Or in the old days where we actually had tapes, where the tape got lost or there was some technical problem with the tape, you had to do a whole clinic. So I've kind of been put off for life um, going through that experience. Or when I was in uh, Toronto Fellowship, we had to um, speak into a phone and do all sorts of numbers to like rewind and go forward. It was this really antiquated system. So yeah, I've got sort of post-traumatic stress disorder based on, on that. So now I, I always do it at the time. Right, so I'm gonna try and stick to that. I'll feedback as we go along in the... Uh... Um, right. And so before I do my bite sizes, last month uh, or last episode, there was a little bit of controversy. OK, uh, I love Claire Murnahan to bits, but I couldn't believe when she started saying that if you're going to manipulate a fracture in the emergency department, it needs a full plaster. Uh, so we put a poll out on Twitter um, and I have to say it was close. It was very close. I think I know Emily's position because she did reply. 
the full plaster group got uh, 81% and the backslab group were very close to 19%. Uh, so so I couldn't yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Dubious interpretation there, Anish. Yeah, no, it wasn't close at all. I was shocked. <laughs> man, um, yeah, it, it was an eye opener for me. Um, I don't think I'm going to be changing my practice, but I felt that there's a study in there somewhere. Um, but yep, Claire, you win. Uh, I, I, there you go. Hats off. Right. So I'm going to move on to the bite sizes. OK, so we've talked a bit about various topics and we do try and cover a breadth of pediatric orthopedics and beyond. So the first paper I'm going to talk about is hip reconstruction in closed triradiate cartilage, the long term outcomes in patients with cerebral palsy. And this is Schlemmer Brunner et al. So this is from Basel. Uh, and, you know, everyone I'm sure knows Brunner is a big name in CP in Europe. And it was one of the questions that um, we've often discussed at our unit is the Dagar. Um, and there are various modifications of the Dagar, but the standard, what I'd call San Diego, where you're actually going towards a triradiate. Can you do that once your triradiate has fused? Um, and that's why this paper caught my attention, actually, because they basically said yes. OK, so. They looked at they had a large number of patients, but by the time they got their exclusions, like every study, they ended up with 43 hips in 37 patients. The mean age at the time of surgery was 15 years and the mean follow up was about 13 years. Um, and they were doing the standard type of day guard that we'd all do. And the authors felt that this works because of the osteoporotic bone that a lot of these children or young adults have. It allows the cortex to bend. Um, they did fracture the acetabulum in seven out of 43 cases. Uh, so this was visible on an X-ray. Only one of those patients had pain. Uh, in their follow-up, so 13 years, uh, migration percentage was well below 10%. Uh, and seven out of the 43 hips, and remember that was only one that had the fracture, had pain at final follow-up. So I thought this was really good, actually, because it does give me some confidence in carrying on saying, yep, we can do day guys in this age group rather than something a bit more dramatic. Uh, are you guys big believers in the Dagar? Is that something you do through all ages? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Emily being in Edinburgh, so the original paper was Brunner and Rob. Rob, um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and and he's such a lovely bloke. He, he he knows what he's talking about. So I believe what he says. I believe him, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. although hopefully in Edinburgh, you know, uh, my, my CP colleague, Mark Gaston, is very much proactive when it comes to... Uh, you know, preventing these kind of cases and actually, you know, doing a DEGA very early on or femoral osteotomy, you know, after 46% or RIMER is the point of no return. So there is quite a small subset of patients coming through at that sort of age that do need the DEGA, but that's certainly, you know, the osteotomy of, of choice here in Edinburgh. Yeah, cool. Right. And then uh, moving on with um, a paper called How Are Adults Who Had Perthes Disease Functioning? Results of over 900 participants from an international web-based survey. So this is from Scottish Rights. So you've got Harry Kim on there, Mike Millis. Uh, and it was published in the Bone and Joint Journal in December 2022. Um, and there's been a lot of work on Perthes, hasn't there? If I'm honest, I'm not sure this adds a huge amount of new things, uh, but it was an interesting study. Because uh, there aren't that many long-term studies, okay? Most are single-centre, they've got small numbers, and they don't necessarily have patient-reported outcome measures. Uh, so what the authors here did was a red cap survey. And I thought when I saw the title, because it sounded like it's going to be multi-centre, that it would be a whole load of units recruiting their own patients. Because this is uh, on behalf of the International Perthes Study Group. 
I thought they'd have used their own patients. What they actually did was advertise using uh, social media. They contacted support groups and a Perthes disease study group website was used. And the survey was open for 15 months. Uh, and they used various scales. So the UCLA, uh, UCLA scale, which is an activity scale, the SF36, and then the WHOS scores, which is a hip disability and OA score. Now, they actually got almost 1,200 participants answering this survey. Uh, 921 hadn't had a hip replacement, so they were the people who formed the study group. And what the authors did was compare their results for these surveys with normative data that is available for SF36 and WHOOS. So there was a female preponderance of 56%, which is unusual for Perthes. The mean age was 38, and the mean interval between disease onset and survey completion was about 31 years. 47% were from the states in terms of these patients, 27% from the UK, and the rest were from various countries around the world. Uh, look, they had a little table that they presented where you could see about 30% had surgery, 30% had bracing and casting. But what wasn't clear was they could have been patients through the same groups. You could have had a brace and you could have had surgery as well. Uh, An active treatment included activity modification or physiotherapy. Um, out of this group, 6% of men, 12% of women had had surgery after age 18, but not a total hip replacement. And what they found was, which is probably un, you know, not surprising, but it was lower than I thought it would be. They found that the SF36 and WHO scores were much lower than the normative group. And especially so for females, um, in which case the quality of life category had the biggest difference. So the people that had the worst outcomes were females, those who are obese, those who had no treatment in childhood, that includes no physio, no activity modification, and age over 11 uh, at onset. And this is where I'm saying it's not actually that new. These are the things, you know, uh, Tony Cattrall had put in his clinical at-risk signs. But actually, this is based on patient-reported outcome measures. So it is new. Um, what they found was if you had surgery in childhood, you also had lower scores, but not as low as the no treatment groups. Um, interestingly, if you were a USA-based participant, you had significantly better scores in certain domains, but they didn't really go into which ones. Um, and so I thought this was an interesting paper. It gives you some food for thought, but there were lots of weaknesses here. You don't know what the um, outcomes were. You don't know what the Herring's uh, grade was. And this is a self-selected population, isn't it? This is people that are on a Perthes website or a Perthes social media group. Um, so I think it confirms what we knew in a very nice way. Uh, and it is useful information to counsel patients with. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, I don't think it adds very much in trying to help us manage this condition into the future. Have you guys got any strong thoughts on this paper or Perthes? I thought it was interesting the different um, geographical differences. And um, there was a paper, quite similar paper actually done um, a few years ago, a GPU paper in 2014, where they looked at the Swedish population. And they found sort of similar levels of pain, but actually from that group, they were more physically active than the general population, which I'm right. pretty sure we would not see in the UK or, or the US. And they, their thoughts about that were that um, because the parties might be linked to sort of hyperactivity, you know, behaviours in those patients, that's why they were more, more physically active. But whether just the Swedes are just generally a more active population and then interesting that impact 
and that behavior in this this group that have parties I thought I just thought that was interesting to to compare but yeah and I don't think it adds a huge huge amount and clearly the patients that were doing the worst probably had a hip replacement by then so you you're yeah. also looking at the sort of more mildly affected group as well hmm. um Right, then the next paper. So this is JCO um, 2022, and this is by Hannah Weinmeyer, Anne Breen, Harold Steen, and a guy that I've come across in the past, and we meet at EPOS every now and again, Joachim Horn. Uh, this is a Norwegian paper, and they looked at angular deformities after percutaneous epiphysiodesis for leg length discrepancy, uh, which is an operation, I think, every pediatric orthopedic surgeon probably does, whatever your subspecialty interest may be whether it's CP, DDH, limb reconstruction, you are going to be doing these operations. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because of the headline figure, actually. So 148, uh, 140 patients in the study, mean of about four-year follow-up. And what they did was looked at long-leg radiographs, which not all studies looking at epiphysiodesis have done. And what they found was that 10% of patients had a change in mechanical axis deviation of more than 10 millimeters, so quite significant. If you were doing distal femoral epiphysiodesis or if you had greater growth remaining at the time of surgery, so someone who's uh, skeletally uh, less mature, I suppose, uh, these were the two groups that correlated significantly with the cases where there was mechanical axis deviation. Now, one of the things that was interesting when I read this paper, what I didn't realize was when the original descriptions of percutaneous epiphysiodesis were given, you were only supposed to drill the peripheral third of the knee on each side, so the femur or the tibia. Um, because yeah, when I've been shown it, you drill across um, and the authors say that they've actually stuck to the method that was originally described. And they wonder whether going across uh, into the central area would reduce the risks of this, this complication. Um, but I thought it was, so it's something I do warn my patients about, but I suddenly thought it's something I always thought, oh, it's not that common. But when you hear that it's about 10% of patients, uh, suddenly it becomes a bit more serious, doesn't it? Do you guys all drill all the way across or do you stick to the original and just go on that third? The I do both sides. I go from both from medial yeah. and lateral. So this is medial and lateral, but only going a third of the way into the knee. So you're not actually meeting. Oh, no, no, no. Do you meet in the middle? Yeah. Yeah. Because I was going to say, that's you kind of want that money shot, don't you, where you've got your patent burrs, your curettes or your drills meeting from medial and lateral in that middle space. Uh, so hopefully it's something that wouldn't affect us. But it was a nicely done study. Um, and I thought it was something that was, it, I, I did think it adds to literature and it's something I'll use it when I'm counselling my patients. Emily. So we in Edinburgh use um, what we call a tube saw. And I think it's one of these devices that's kind of unique to us. Right. Occasionally you have orthopaedic hospitals and kind of in the midst of time they've had um, uh, workshops. So actually tools are specific to that, that area. So we have, it's, um, it's like a sort of small apple corer. So the, the guide wire goes all the way across and then just from one side, it's still fairly percutaneous. So you just take out the entire um, growth plate. So you, we have complete certainty that we've got that, that middle section and that, that works well for us. But it's just one of these little, little quirks um, that's come from that sort of historic um, orthopaedic hospital relationship with a, with a workshop. So yeah, that's how we do it. Oh, that's good. That sounds very cool. Can you, can you send us pictures? Love to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? That would be good. Um, and Emily, you probably remember in uh, in the sick kids, uh, Andrew Howard used to pop cross uh, cannulated screws as well, just like belt and braces. Um, yeah, and, you know, he's all by that, right? Yeah. 
Um, and that's the thing, isn't it? I think it's such a simple operation. There's so many different ways of doing it. But um, yeah, it'd be nice to see these, uh, see this tube saw that you're talking about. Right. Uh, you can't discuss pediatric orthopedic research without discussing supracondylar fractures. Um, and yes, yes, if you do lateral wiring, you don't have to worry about this paper. But uh, and I, I'm not going to talk about Superman, but that has been published in the BJJ. And the interesting thing with that was if you are apparently pediatric orthopedic surgeons are more likely to use lateral wires than the non-pediatric orthopedic surgeons. So for those of you who still do cross K wiring, and that includes me, uh, what do you do when you, the ulnar nerve doesn't look to be working after your uh, surgery? And so basically, this was a systematic review published uh, in the Journal of Children's Orthopedics at the end of last year. And it's a group from Adelaide, uh, so Graffa Tell. Um, and they did the standard systematic review stuff. OK, so they uh, looked at papers published from 1950, pa uh, patients from the age of two to 12 with an ulnar nerve palsy specifically attributed to medial wire insertion for supracondylar fracture. Um, they compared not doing anything, so just taking out the wire at three and a half weeks versus taking the wire out early and or exploring the nerve at the same time. They found 26 papers uh, with a total of 179 patients between them. Uh, of those 179 patients, 2.2 had, had the mini open approach. All the rest were percutaneous. So I suppose one thing to say there is mini open does seem to be a bit protected. Um, but out of the 179, 153 patients were managed completely expectantly. So no change. And a 91% had full recovery. Of the 13 that didn't uh, have a documented recovery, one was mini open and 19 were percutaneous. In the active treatment group, so this is where they either took the medial wire out early or explored, 15% didn't have documented full recovery. So that's actually higher. Now, no nerves when they did explore required repair or grafting. So I thought this was very interesting because I've been in this situation a couple of times. Uh, I think what you do is you go with the case in front of you. So once it was a patient that had been wired by someone and they were absolutely fine before and then they had a very dense palsy immediately after surgery and the patient was old enough uh, to be able to tell you that. And I think that's very different to the case that you pick up two weeks later in fracture clinic where they've got a little bit of altered sensation. And I think that's uh, the problem with the research. And that's what the authors say, is that actually no one's talking about the degree of deficit when you're looking at these papers. Uh, and that's probably what really determines treatment. So this paper says, seems to say, manage them expectantly and you'll probably be OK. Um, but yes, Emily, uh, Alpesh, you guys were sick kids uh, fellows. Does that mean you do lateral wiring? Was that a thing there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, only the really difficult ones to reduce when you kind of use both wires up into the fracture site to sort of use as two joysticks. That's pretty much my, my only indication. And I would always use a mini open. I'm just completely paranoid about, about the ulnar nerve. So I do that media wire so infrequently that, um, yeah, it really makes me very worried to do that. So I need to actually get that nerve 100 percent out out of the zone of the the wire going in and how about you Apish? yeah well i don't do trauma anymore um but uh -huh. uh, sick kids um yeah um, and also i mean i think my thoughts with the concept of mini open is where this has to be as big as you need it to big be to to, to be com comfortable that the nerve isn't there um and yeah. uh that's so that yeah yeah 
Um, right, I'm going to whisk through a few more papers because it was really a good few months, actually. Um, and I don't know if you guys do CT rotational profiles when you're planning your derotation osteotomy. So you look and you go, oh, yeah, look, the uh, tibial torsion is out by 17.5 degrees. And then you put some KYs into the bone and derotate it in theatres. But uh, this paper, which is uh, Ye Jung Min et al. from South Korea, and it was published in the American JBJS in 2022. It's called Development and Validation of a Mobile Application for Measuring Tibial Torsion. Um, they've already done this, apparently for femurs. And essentially, it is some really clever maths. OK, uh, what they did was create something called a statistical shape model, an SSM, which is a mesh of triangles and dots, apparently, that presents a 3D shape mathematically. So once you've got this SSM, which is a 3D shape, you can take 2D images and the computer will blend them into the known 3D shape. So essentially, they can use an iPad Pro to take pictures of the x-rays, just an AP and lateral. You use your Apple Pencil to contour the images, just color in the x-ray. Uh, and from that, they can generate a 3D model of the tibia and measure tibial torsion. Between observers, uh, reliability of 0.89, and then they use 75 tibia clinical cases comparing rotational profile CT with the mobile app. And the correlation coefficient was 0.865. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Unfortunately, they don't tell you where to get this app. I did look on the Apple store. It's not there. I tried to Google the authors, tried to Google. Uh, there was a company that has been put down in the uh, disclosures. Couldn't find them. I have emailed the corresponding author and are waiting to hear. Uh, Pranay is just saying they presented the femur at EPOS 2018. I think this would be massive. If you don't have to put people through CT, it saves a lot of resource. Um, and it gives you a quick answer there and then, doesn't it, rather than sending them off and then having another discussion. Um, so, yeah, I was quite excited by that. How does that sound? Would you guys be interested in using something like that? There is EOS, but again, uh, that's very limited in its availability. Yeah, I thought it looked really cool. And uh, the paper has got video in it. So stick a video in a paper and, you know, okay. kind of have it there. And it actually did look, look quite, quite easy, quite cool to do. And the images were definitely comparable to you know this 3d ct recons that you get so yeah i'm interested to know to know more definitely we don't have any os um in edinburgh yet because we've not found space for it even in our new hospital so we are using um you know ct so to minimize the radiation very keen to consider that yeah yeah right now, um, Emily, you talked a bit about qualities of surgeons at the beginning uh, and in terms of role models and things like that. So um, and I have a bit of an interest in training as well, uh, as people know. So this paper I thought was really cool. So it's a Journal of Surgical Education. And it's something that I discuss with my colleagues and I discuss with my trainees is what makes a good surgeon. OK, uh, there was a paper by um, I want to say Bullstrode. Uh, many years ago, when I was prepping for the registrar interviews in those days, which said 25% of a surgeon is their surgical ability and the rest is non-technical skills. Um, this paper was from Israel. And essentially, these guys set out to answer that question. So this is uh, Gazit, Bengal and Eliashat. Uh, and it's from the Journal of Surgical Education. And the paper is called Using Job Analysis for Identifying the Desired Competencies of 21st surgeon, uh, Century Surgeons for Improving Trainee Selection. And so what they did 
was they first started by interviewing senior surgeons across all surgical specialties. They got just over 100 participants and they wanted at least two surgeons from each subspecialty. And then they used this to create what they felt was a comprehensive list of desired competencies. The items that they'd identified, they then put into an, a web-based questionnaire, which they sent to 3,000 surgeons from the Israeli Medical Association database. And within those competencies, there were five technical skills, so such as dexterity, coordination, six cognitive abilities, and 13 personality characteristics. And they asked people to rank which of those competencies was important. Uh, but for two groups of people, one for attendings, and then secondly, for the selection process. They had a 45% response rate, which I think for a survey like this is actually pretty good. And that's over 1,100 participants. 23% were females. Uh, and they were well represented in both groups. All were deemed important. Okay, so all of the competencies had a score of over 3.5 on the one to five scale. But personality characteristics were more important than cognitive abilities, which were more important than technical skills. So technical skills were at the bottom of these three groups. What they felt highest for attendings was necessary was integrity and stress tolerance whilst integrity and passion for surgery were highest for selecting trainees. And when you looked at the average scores, uh, personality characteristics, each of those was scoring about 4.5 out of 5, whereas technical skills scored about 3.7. So still important, but really not as important as the other bits. And they did compare responses from genders, okay? Uh, did female surgeons feel that there were, there were things that were different to what the males may have said, and there wasn't. They found that were very similar. And one of the explanations they feel is that maybe surgeons generally believe that technical skills can be taught, but your personality can't and those traits. Um, and I was reflecting on this because I, I do agree with a lot of what they say. Um, I think national selection is great. I think it used to be awesome when we had it face to face. And that's a discussion. You know, that's a whole discussion in itself. I think there are many things that we can pick up through the portfolio, but I don't think it can assess your stress tolerance. Maybe the interview does. Uh, it can't really assess your teamwork, certainly not your integrity or your cognitive flexibility. Um, maybe the interview could be geared to do that, or maybe I think references have to be used a bit more than we use them right now. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting paper. It was surgery in general, but there was orthopedic representation there. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Do you think it is all about technical skills? You're not allowed to say yes now. I'm a big believer in behaviours, attitudes, non-technical skills, looking to see how we might be able to address that, to select for that. Because just as you say, Anish, um, you can't change a lot of those things, and particularly in Scotland where we are selecting ST1 level, mm. um, you know, an eight-year training programme. If you didn't select those people with those right attributes, the ones that are difficult to change, um, then you're in a whole lot of trouble. Um, the individuals that get onto the training scheme are because it's very difficult to, to leave and um, really challenging. And, you know, as the healthcare um, system, having individuals that are not suited to, to the jobs is, is a complete disaster. So it is so interesting to look at these personality traits. And apparently there is a surgical personality and um, there was a big study done by the English College and there were 600 responses. So Surgeons are more likely to be open, conscientious, extrovert, agreeable, and neurotic. And I think 
it's interesting, you know, that that neurotic element of of surgeons' personalities because you know that is you know where a lot of anger, anxiety, kind of vulnerability is, and where I think there's quite high rates of of burnout and mental health issues amongst surgeons, and it is definitely part of our our personality. So how we can you know, a select people that have the right um, personalities, and also support people once once they're in with their personality traits that you know are are, are challenging to manage as well. So yeah, no, I, this is an interesting paper. It definitely, kind of floated my boat. As you say, we come full circle. So when you say how can we support them, it comes back to your idea of coaching, doesn't it? Uh, as yeah, so self reflection and recognition. Um, yeah. that we're not all perfect human beings and that we all have vulnerabilities absolutely I, mean, my, my, I thought it was a good paper but my only comment was that um how did they vet the surgeons that they ask like are they good role models are they good at their job um the one interesting thing about that and it doesn't mean that they're good role models or good at their job but they excluded people who aren't clinically active which i thought was very interesting because actually you could say surely you should have the people who've been there, done that over a 20 year period, but actually they chose not to include them. Um, so yes, I suppose they were looking for, they're, they're called it the 21st century surgeon, and so they want to see, but you're quite right, aren't you? You know, who was filling this in? And I suppose 45% response rate, uh, the people who felt, no, it's all about me and all about my surgical prowess. They probably didn't even fill in the questionnaire. They never do, right? Um, so a um, couple more quick little bits. So JAMA Surgery 2022. Uh, this is a paper by Catherine Heatel, and it was correlation between post-operative antimicrobial prophylaxis use and surgical site infection in children undergoing non-emergent surgery. Um, guys, when you're doing your elective operations, are you one dose on induction or are you one dose followed by two post-operative doses? Just the one. You change, just the one. Emily's just the one. Yeah, just the one. Um, when I've been going for three hours or longer, we top up, but that's it. Brilliant. And now uh, Pranay, just the one. Uh, right. So I have to say sometimes, uh, so I'm normally, sometimes I'm never, uh, I don't do anything. Sometimes I'm just the one. And there are cases where I just feel there's a higher risk of infection. I will go with two post-operative doses. And if you said, what's that based on? Sometimes it is the patient themselves and the nature of the surgery you're doing. Um, but it's about your feeling about this, isn't it? Which isn't scientific at all. And so, yeah, this paper basically looked at antibiotic prophylaxis uh, in a multi-centre study of 93 hospitals who were all participating in the American College of Surgeons Pediatric National Surgical Quality Improvement Programme Surgical Antibiotic Prophylaxis Stewardship Collaborative. I wasn't reading that at all, I promise. Uh, it's a two-year retrospective study and uh, it has powerful numbers. They looked at uh, surgical site infection developing at 30 days post-op, uh, multiple surgical specialties, 40,000 patients included, 22.4% were orthopaedic. 40% um, of those orthopaedic patients were given antibiotics after surgery, but there was no difference in infection rate. So uh, it validates your practices, guys, when you say we only give the one dose. I think it is sensible when you've got uh, time ticking on within surgery, uh, I think there's good evidence for that, isn't there, for the second dose at two or three hours. But yeah, nothing needed post-op. And then finally, sorry. sorry just yeah. a quick comment with that paper saying um, that maybe they weren't intending is that there was quite a big variation in the infection rates between hospitals. And um, that might be something they need to look into a bit more, actually. 
Yeah, um, and they did comment on that, but they said there was no relationship with antibiotic use. So, so again, that was quite good to have that variation. Um, and I suppose that's the problem with some of these studies, isn't it? When you're looking at a study that you want to organize yourself and it's things you have to address, address in the ethics, what do you do when there are problems like this and you're seeing outliers? Um, but yeah, um, that is an interesting point. Now, finally, okay, I don't know how you guys feel when you see patients in clinic. Uh, Alpesh, you mentioned a lot of chronic pain going on with Perthes. Uh, we have to have discussions about weight. And I always find it quite difficult. You're kind of like, okay, how do I talk about this? What are the words I can or can't use? And so this is a paper from Pediatrics. Um, it's Rebecca Puel et al, Patient and Family Perspectives on Terms for Obesity, uh, published in December 2022. And I thought, great, this is going to tell me what I can and can't say. Okay. Um, and basically what they did was uh, they were talking about terms used for weight with children and families, what terms parents are using and what terms the youths, and that's the word they use, I didn't, uh, the youths will accept. Mean age in the group, uh, study group was 14.6 years. And basically my conclusion is that the youth don't want to talk about their weight. So uh, if you're going to talk about weight, 50% didn't want to hear you say high BMI, heavy, fat, obese, or big. Um, and apparently 43% never want to hear their parents say they are well endowed. Um, so I guess that means something very different in America to what it would mean in this country. Um, but yeah, basically they like to hear healthy weight, but I think that's a bit of a difficult discussion, isn't it? If you're sitting in clinic saying, you have a healthy weight. Um, so yeah, unfortunately that paper didn't help me very much there. Uh, you guys, any tips when you're talking about these matters? Oh, I think it's really challenging. Um, I quite like a visual representation so we can, you know, chart their, their weight or their BMI. Yeah. I think that actually being able to say, this is where you should be. This is your, your healthy weight zone and use the, the, the terminology that the youth spike um, and then indicate when they're above and below that might keep you out of trouble because I think it's one area that um, I have witnessed some absolute howlers um, from, from colleagues in one of these. I'm not ever going to say it like that or do, you know, do as they have done. And yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be quite cautious, but I think it really is um, common on us that we do address it and don't just brush it under the carpet. It's so, it's so important that I think, yeah, healthy weight, go with that. Yeah. It's, are, are we allowed to say it's the elephant in the room sometimes? Or <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, I try not to tell, tell them that they're too big, but maybe just say, um, you know, I think if you manage to lose a little bit of weight, that would only help your symptoms or something like that and it'll make you feel better. Um, so not saying that they're fat, um, but just it sometimes works. I don't know. Yeah, um, I think. And it, again, it varies, doesn't it? It does depend on the patients, the parents. Uh, it can it's just it, it can be a minefield. And unfortunately, this patient didn't uh, this paper didn't help. It did talk about how uh, with certain racial and ethnic minorities, you could use terms like thick or curvy. Uh, working in Norfolk, I don't think that's going to help. Why did you pick this paper if it didn't help? There's, there's I... so many other ones to discuss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. So the problem is, right, Alpesh, I read these papers and you don't want to then throw it away once you've read it and you think, OK. Uh, and as I said, I think the, the crux of this is actually people probably don't want to hear what you've got to say, right? So however you dress it up, they these youth don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear you say that they're overweight. 
Um, but yes, I don't think that means we should be shying away from it. So what it did do is reaffirm that there's no nice way of saying this, and I'm just going to have to jump in and hopefully uh, they won't get offended because that's that is the other thing. These are uh, really sensitive people, aren't they? They're at this horrible uh, stage in life. You don't know what other people are saying to them. You want to handle this delicately. Uh, and this paper didn't help me at all. So yeah, sorry about wasting everyone's time, but there you go. You learn a few little things, I think. Um, right, that's the wrap up, guys. Um, Emily, thank you very much for joining us. Last question, okay, you are chair of the BizCos EdCom, uh, and you've got, uh, you know, we know working with you, you've got many goals. Um, and I think your big one, uh, or one of your big goals is trying to improve the number of medical students or increase the number of medical students that take up pediatric orthopedics at the end of it all. Um, there are loads of challenges, but how do you think we and the listeners could help with this? What would you recommend? Because I think it's something we all know. We need to have more people coming into pediatric orthopedics. So I think when they they do get exposed to us, um, for, for better words, and they, they are... Um, exposed to an amazing subspecialty and lots of enthusiastic people, but I think they just don't know that it exists. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we did a little promotional video, um, come join us, um, that's on YouTube, just little snippets of people from around the country, very diverse group. And I think Pete's Ortho is diverse, and I think that's one of our main selling points. Yeah. Um, Kind of trying to demonstrate to, to medical students that you know we're here or a specialty we're welcoming come join us and now we've got a medical student um sitting on the edcom so he's been great and sort of advising us um from that perspective and we've got a series of of webinars planned and events to kind of to to reach out there um because you know i think we need to get medical students interested in peds ortho rather than wait for people to become trainees because i think people decide so early on their their subspecialty interests and if you've not had that peds exposure then it's just not going to be on your radar so yeah getting to medical students increasing the awareness exposure and also trying to implement um trying to get into medical schools and curriculum development to actually make sure that students rotate through orthopedics and ideally through Pete's ortho, yeah. multi-strand approach. Um, I'm working on it. No, no, you are. We know that. Um, and yeah, I think it'll be interesting for everyone to hear everything you guys are up to. Um, right. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's a wrap. So thank you very me. much, Emily. No, thank uh, you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, Alpesh. Uh, and thank you very much, producer Pranay. Uh, and thank you very much for listening in. Uh, if you liked it, tell everyone about it. And if you didn't, uh, don't. Okay. Thank you very much, guys. See ya. Bye. Bye.